Hello, my name is Mark Green, Mission Champion at the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity. And this is the TGIM Thank God It's Monday podcast, where we explore the way Jesus works through a whole variety of people in a whole variety of sectors and jobs. In this episode, we're going into the whirling world of hospital medicine. And joining us to offer astute diagnosis and splendid prescriptions are Ben Chang, five years qualified as a registrar now in A&E, high stakes, high jeopardy context, and also by John Wyatt, 500 years qualified, <laughs> emeritus professor of neonatal natal paediatrics treating babies, again, in our high stakes, high jeopardy uh, context for us adrenaline junkies, I suspect, both of you. Great well, to know. Shalom, welcome to you both. Um, as ever in the TJM podcast, you get to interrupt, ask questions of one another and so on. But I get to ask the first one. And I'm going to begin with you, Ben. Ben, what drew you into medicine in general and... Uh, into A&E in particular. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, uh, my kind of journey into medicine as a field was somewhat uh, unintentional. <laughs> I, I didn't have this kind of um, desire since childhood to be a doctor or some sort of epiphany. Um, I was 16, 17, trying to figure out what to do at university, kind of like science. Uh, my parents really wanted me to be a doctor and I didn't really know what else to do. <clears throat> so I applied for medicine, somehow managed to get in, uh, get into UCL um, and uh, yeah, kind of just started not really knowing what I was doing. Um, that being said, once I started, you know, within a few months, I, I very quickly realized actually this was pretty amazing. Um, this was an amazing thing to do, to be a part of, a real privilege to, to do. And, and I'm now very glad that I did. I, I, I do love medicine. I do love my job. I reserve the right to moan about it quite quite a lot, but I still uh, I love I do love my job. Um, a and E was a bit more intentional. Um, I uh, did. It a, wasn't an accident. That wasn't. Some of the jokes here is fantastic. I was following up. Um, uh, yeah, so I um, in, in my first two years of, of of doctoring, you had to you have to do various rotations, and A and E was was one of them. And I just found myself very at home in A and E. I love the chaos and the drama and the diversity of, of things that you get to do uh, the pace of which um so yeah i i found myself um taking to it um, as my natural habitat um and then yeah applied for any specialist training and now about halfway through uh, my specialist training in emergency medicine i get i get to the variety bit the sort of the diversity bit but uh you know i was in an a e department about three weeks ago and i gotta say it doesn't look, to the outside, it doesn't look like a great place. So it's incredibly noisy. Mm -hmm. um, there are all kinds of people there. There are, there are elderly people there with, you know, people looking after them who don't know where they, they are. There's, there's a guy there sitting there with blood literally running down the side of his face. There's a woman there who's clearly unwell with three children because no, there's clearly no one else to look after the children. And she's brought them along with her. I mean, it's just going on and on. There's people coming in calling out people's names that they can't pronounce and no one knows who's been called out and so on yes, and so forth. And someone's in the toilet, yeah, someone's got for a bag. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You could go into the corridor, it's completely rammed. I get variety, but that, you know, you have to explain a little bit more about why that's attractive. <laughs> it's like a Middle Eastern bazaar on a bad day. 
and, and yeah, and don't get me wrong, it is um, stressful, and certainly when it is rammed, I mean, you know, a lot of A&E uh, at the moment uh, have corridors that are rammed with yeah, patients yeah. who really should be in the department or in the hospital, um, and it's just kind of loads and loads and queues and queues of, of people um, sitting on the floor or, sit, or, or lying and or sitting on chairs uh, when they should be in beds, um, and that's not pleasant. That is um, not pleasant to watch, and also. For us, it feels like we're not giving the care we should be simply because there is no space, there's no resources. So it is hard. Um, but at the same time, I I like um, I like the kind of drama of it. As I mean, you say adrenaline junkie, I probably am a bit of an adrenaline junkie for that. But also on a kind of more sober front, um, in those situations where it is so chaotic and so challenging, actually small things can make a big difference. Like taking a moment to say hello to someone to to have a conversation with them to get them a cup of tea can make a big difference because it's so um well unpleasant to be sat in a corridor floor in a and e for five six hours um so yes it is challenging um for patients and for staff uh, but the opportunities um are great as well it's it's often obvious uh, to people on the outside that of course if you're in, in medicine if you're a nurse if you're a doctor um, of course, this is a good thing to be doing. You're in the healing professions. But one of the things I discovered in, in working with the Christian Medical Fellowship is that often, actually, medical professionals don't particularly think that they're at all special. And that actually, if, if, if you've really got your act together properly, then the Lord would have called you to be a pastor. And I remember talking to one, one guy who was a doctor who said, you know, I got quite annoyed. He said, I got sort of annoyed with God. You know, if you haven't made me a pastor, the least you can do is send me overseas as a, as a medical missionary. How do you think about about your work, if you like, <laughs> theologically, biblically? What what underpins it from that point of view? Wow, that's a big question. Um, I'd also like to hear John's, John's answer to this question. Um, I don't think you'd be able to stop it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I can, I can start as an intro. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, there's a lot that can be said about this. Um, and certainly I've heard it um, said uh, from uh, some pulpits that, or at least implied that if you're really godly and really committed to Christ, then you become a vicar and maybe a missionary that can also count or an evangelist. And, you know, if you are kind of less committed to Jesus, then you can do one of these other secular professions, um, of which medicine would be one. Um, and I would respectfully disagree um, with that uh, for a whole host of um, reasons. Um, I think for a start, um, the Bible speaks of us as uh, integrated whole people uh, who are physical, who are psychological, who are relational and who are spiritual beings um, and we should care for people as whole people as whole individuals and uh, therefore the idea that oh the important stuff is the spiritual stuff um, and that you know, if you really cared for someone or if you really cared about Jesus you would care about their spiritual health and the, the medical stuff the, the physical stuff that can I can take second priority. It's a very bizarre way of seeing whole human beings, mm. just in a human level, never mind theologically. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the privileges of uh, being a medic is that I get to do a little bit of um, the different aspects and, and to try my best to care for whole people as whole people. Um, and that is both in the workplace and, um, uh, and in the church. And then I think also is worth um, perhaps mentioning that uh, you know, when Jesus is asked about you know the greatest commandment is love God, love your neighbor, and then is asked, well, who is my neighbor? And he tells the story of the good Samaritan, 
this story, this parable of really um, self-sacrificial, physical, gritty, expensive love. (laughs) And there's no evangelism involved. It's pure physical care for their physical needs. That is what Jesus describes when asked about love God and love your neighbor. Mm. Um, And so I'm not saying that it's not loving to evangelize and to tell people the gospel, but clearly Jesus has a much bigger view of love than just that. And the wonderful thing about the Good Samaritan is that all the the, the kind of hallmarks of love that Jesus describes, you know, meeting them at the point of need, free of charge, and doing whatever it takes, you know, caring for their their physical needs, crossing barriers, cultural barriers. A lot of that stuff is written into the job description of doctors, that we're meant to do that professionally. We have to do that. And that's a real privilege to do. You now own the the Good Samaritan parable for yourselves. <laughs> Fantastic. She noticed that it gets a very good private room in that particular parable. I'm looking, <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. John, you were invited to comment on, you know, theological, biblical uh, foundations for your for your work. Yeah. Well, thanks, Ben. I thought that was great, and uh, you know, I I very much agree with it. Um, I was very influenced by John Stott, who was a spiritual father to me. He was rector of all souls. I was a young medical student. And one of the constant themes he he came upon was the concept of incarnational mission. And, uh, and in particular, he talked about the, we all know the Great Commission in, in Matthew chapter 28, go into the world and make disciples. But there's a second Great Commission, which is the one in Gospel of John, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And, and that... That idea that how how did God the Father send Jesus into the world? He sent him as a carer, as somebody who was going to live out God's love in, in practice. And now Jesus is saying to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, just in the same way, now I'm sending you. So, so that vision of whole life, incarnational ministry, that I was called to be Jesus. You know, So the question was... I, you know, I can remember thinking this, you know, if instead of coming as a carpenter into, uh, you know, first century Palestine, God had chosen to, to, to break into the world as a very tired junior doctor <laughs> working in central London in a very demanding kind of intensive medicine, what would he have been like? How would he have worked? How would he have treated the patients? How would he have treated the babies? And then my my calling is to try to be Jesus in that situation. It reminds me, actually, and I, I, I've got this prayer that I try to pray before shifts, and I have no idea where it came from. And I don't know if it came from you or not, <laughs> so um, you can take credit for it if you want. Um, but it's a prayer that I, I find very helpful, which is, as I go into shift, God, help me see you and be you today in the shift. So help me see you, see the image image of God in each patient I have, that they're not a problem list or a uh, the diagnosis solved, they're an image bearer of God, and then to be you, to be your hands, to administer your love um, to these patients. Um, and I, I, I found that has um, helped me at least kind of frame uh, what I do each day. Um, and I don't, know if it, <laughs> I don't know if I got that from you or not. <laughs> well, you know, it said plagiarism is the greatest uh, Christian virtue. So mm. I, I did say that, but I pinched it from other people. Okay. So, you know, I, <laughs> I encourage you to pinch the good stuff and we shall repeat it. That's a bit of a pity I was going to take credit for it myself. <laughs> <if> I <knew. laughs> Uh, before we go on too far, John, tell us about your own, if you can remember this far back, how, how you began and what drew you into medicine. 
Yeah, well, I was going to be a scientist. I was going to be a cosmologist. Actually, I love physics. I was going to. I was going to. Um, I was going to investigate the mysteries of the universe. And and this was sort of age seventeen, eighteen. And my idea was I was going to live in a laboratory and discuss, think deep thoughts about the universe. And once every five years, I'd come out and make sure the world was still there. But actually, that was it. You know, and. And it, even that kind of lifestyle seemed attractive at the time. I thought, how wonderful to live in a lab, you know. And then when I was, and I actually went to physics, I, I went to university and read physics. And then it was really my first year at university. I had this kind of life crisis, which was very much related to, you know, what is the, per, what are you here for? Is, is Christianity really reliable? I came from a Christian home, but I had all kinds of questions and doubts and did I really believe this? Had I been brainwashed by my parents? And really, it was in my first year of university that, that my Christian faith came alive. I suddenly discovered the reality of Jesus as a living person and the Holy Spirit in, in my life. And then, to my utter astonishment, within weeks of, of a really quite dramatic experience, I suddenly had this strong sense I was being called to be a doctor. And I suppose, I, and I, I rationalized it by saying, well, Medicine is a way of using the science I'm good at for the people that God really cares about. Mm. And, uh, and, and, and so that meant I had to leave the university where I was because they didn't do, uh, I, for various technical reasons, I came to London. I think it would be slightly modest, I think you were, were at Oxford. I was at Oxford. Not really many didn't. people go, I'm leaving Oxford. <laughs> what a good idea. Yeah. And so I came to the grime of London and left the dreaming spires. And then I thought, what am I doing? South London, yeah. It was South London. It was Lambeth. It was Lambeth. Uh, I started at St. Thomas's Hospital Medical School, as it was then. Right. And um, yeah, it was a big transition. But uh, in retrospect, I can see God's hand leading and, and going before it. And, um, and I've basically loved it. I mean, medicine is just, I was just made to be a baby doctor. Yes, but how did you get into that? How did you... Well, into baby. again, I, I sort of discovered I was an adrenaline junkie and I loved intensive care. I loved the, the drama um, and the life and death stuff. And I did adult intensive care uh, for some time. I worked in adult medicine. And then basically at that time, I was planning to be a missionary. I was, uh, God was, I felt God was calling me to be a missionary, a missionary doctor. I was going to live, give my life gloriously for the Lord probably in Africa and probably be martyred at a young age. <laughs> and, um, but in order to do that, you know, I did have all these very romantic <laughs> ideas. <laughs> but anyway, in order to do that, it's I, not only seven. <laughs> but I, um, I had, I, pediatrics would be a good thing to, uh, to study. And so I, I, I decided to do a year of pediatrics before being a missionary and going to, going abroad. And, uh, and I suddenly, when I started paediatrics, it felt like I'd come home. There was just something about, I can remember the first uh, ward round with, with a consultant paediatrician and I was just the junior guy just starting. And as we were going around in this chaos of the children's ward, and then the consultant gets down on his hands and knees and starts playing with the toys. Oh, this is a really good one. How do you want to go with this? <laughs> I just thought, this is me. I like this. This is much better than those sort of in the problem in adult medicine particularly academic medicine because i i worked at barts and 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 there you had these huge egos these medical academic medically that they had such arrogance and it was it was quite painful so 
by and large, paediatricians don't have an exaggerated sense of their own importance. You know, if, if you're really confident about, you know, your, your status is really important to you, you know, the number of letters after your name and the fact that you've got this, that said, well, children are not terribly impressed by this. You know, they, they, t- they take you as they find you. And, and you know, so, so people who have a very exaggerated sense of importance don't go into paediatrics. They do, they do neurosurgery or cardiology or... <laughs> I think we all have a, a sense, I suppose, having lived to a and at some point of what that feels like, looks like, however naive I might be about it. Um, but I'm not sure we have a sense of intensive care and babies. And Can you just give us a, a not too gory picture? Of that? <laughs> yeah, well, it's an extraordinary environment. And I can remember the first time walking into the little intensive care unit at UCH, where I ended up spending most of my career. And it was just an extraordinary kind of other world existence because in very focused, in a relatively small area, you've got a huge amount of equipment, very sophisticated equipment. You've got some very, very sick babies, uh, some of them incredibly tiny, literally the size of my hand, 500 grams, surrounded by machinery. You've got uh, incubators, you've got intense lights sometimes, and you've got a kind of team working together. There's a, there's a great sense of camaraderie within the team. We're all in this together. Someone described this as a bit like being in a submarine. You know, we're, we're all in, we're in we're locked into the submarine. The most important thing in a submarine with, is that your colleague, you want the kind of colleague who doesn't go flaky when the depth charges start coming down. You know? And it's a bit like the same thing. You're in this quite intense environment. I, I loved the teamwork. I loved being part of a multidisciplinary team because we have we work very closely with neonatal nurses, with physiotherapists, with medical physicists, uh, speech and language therapists, believe it or not, working with babies. Um, and, and being part of that team, working together, supporting one another, saying, oh, you've got an emergency, shall I come and give you a hand? Um, but also the touchy-feely aspect with the babies. So so this part of it is a very technical quite sophisticated, lots of physics, which I loved, the science of it all. And then there's this very touchy feeling. Here are grieving parents, you know, agonizing, watching their precious baby. Maybe, you know, we've got to give them bad news. The scan has shown bleeding in the brain. We don't know, you know, this could mean your baby's going to have some kind of brain damage, possibly cerebral palsy. You know, how, how do we break the bad news? How do we support the parents through this experience? So it's, it's, it's a, Fascinating combination. And I, I just love those two things, hard science uh, and at the same time a kind of touchy-feely um, empathy. And within the hard science and the touchy-feely empathy, um, have you seen, do you see God operating in that? How does, how does your relationship with God feed into, into those contexts? Well, I do. And the extraordinary thing is that not, not always, of course, and, and there are terrible things sometimes and, and, and inexplicable evil. And yet, sometimes I can think of occasions when the neonatal unit where I was working felt a holy place. It felt in some ways more holy than the church down the road. You know, it, it felt as though the presence of God in an in, in an in an intangible, non-verbal way. Here, here was love. Here was the precious preciousness of life. 
here was a miracle happening in front of our eyes. Um, sometimes a tragic thing, a, a baby dying, but, but a sense of God's presence, a sense of love, a sense of awe at what's going on here. You know, I've, I've sometimes wished that I was a, a great creative artist because I would love to capture the expression of a parent as they carry a dying baby in their arms. It's, it's, it's sort of amazing love and amazing, almost awe and wonder at what they're saying, and also sadness, you know, all mingled together. And how, how have you been able to stand alongside people? Well, it's just the privilege again, you know, I mean, as, as Ben said, it's about trying to be Jesus in this situation, just, and trying to be the hands of Jesus. You know, one of the extraordinary privileges of medicine is that we are allowed to actually be the hands. We can touch people. We can mediate God's love in physical contact. And, you know, I could easily have ended up as a preacher or a theologian or so on, but the problem with that is that in the end, all you do is you talk. You, you talk a lot. But as, as medics... <laughs> As we, yeah, some people talk a great deal, actually, Mark. But, but in uh, today, I have to point out. But in medicine, yes, we have the opportunity to talk. But actually, a lot of what we do is is nonverbal. It's just being the hands. And so, I try to be Jesus. I'm praying, Lord, help me to be. So, and I, I've learned that actually, I don't have to talk. A lot of the time, I just have to be there, and by my presence. And, and, and by I can and, and, and sometimes praying silently, just being there for the other people, I, I can, in a very limited way, try to, to be Jesus in the situation. But also we call to see Jesus. Um, and it meant a lot to me that the, the story of the incarnation, you know, how, how, did, how would Mary and Joseph have treated that little bundle that they had in Bethlehem? Would they have said, oh, it's just a baby? I mean... For goodness sake, change that nappy, get on, next one, please. They, they wouldn't. They would, you know, can you imagine the kind of what it was like to, to carry the Son of God in your arms and, and, and to change his nappy and to, and to birth him when he's got a pain in his tummy and, and a mixture of love and respect. And, and so I was called to treat this little baby with that same kind of awe and respect and love and tenderness uh, that, that Mary and Joseph would have treated theirs. Mm. Yeah, I, I've I've heard John speak about uh, this before, and I it really came home to me this idea of um, being in the hands of Jesus uh, during the pandemic. Um, so I, I worked in A and E right through throughout from the very right. beginning of of, of COVID, um, and certainly initially, um, the thing that was hardest for me was that there were no relatives. We banned everyone uh, coming into mm -hmm. the hospital, and for for obvious infection control reasons. And um, yeah, a few months later we did sort of really um, relax the rules a bit when it came to uh, relatives particularly of patients who were dying uh, but certainly when it came to uh, the initial few months you had you know bays and bays and bays of people dying of covid alone completely alone with no one around um, that they knew or loved and that came home to me this idea that actually yes i can you know, do the scans and give the drugs and prescribe things and make the diagnoses. Um, and at that time, there was only really one diagnosis to make, so it wasn't that hard. Um, but actually, 
the thing that these guys need uh, wanted and desperately wanted, especially the ones who were dying, were human presence, a human hand to touch, uh, um, someone to spend just an extra minute or two with them, um, being kind of another human in the room. Um, and it was an incredibly kind of dramatic um, example of how important this can be. Uh, that yes, we so I often get you know carried away sometimes with the um, the kind of seeing the next patient and and trying to figure out this difficult diagnosis or doing these procedures and stuff. And actually, uh, a lot of what we do, um, a lot a lot of the what, one of the most important things we do as as medics and in the health service is just being with people, holding hands, and and being that other human in the room. Certainly for me, my, my father died very early on in in the pandemic, and. Um... He he didn't go through the uh, what you might call the desperate measures um, that might have been taken with the breathing, and I was called nearly at midnight, and a nurse. I talked to the nurse who had been with him. Her name was Rachel. I don't know her second name, and it was incredibly. Um, I mean, it was an awful moment, mm. but it was incredibly affirming that she said, "You know, I was with him the whole time." Mm. And, uh, you know, to know that there was somebody there mm. and there was a great tenderness in her voice, you know, which I was hearing. And uh, so I think that is something that you, you know, good doctors and good nurses do, don't they? They're there. They're there for people. Um, yeah, and, and particularly as people approach death, the greatest fear is abandonment. Mm. The greatest fear for so many people is that I'm just going to be left to to cope with this um, terrible, unbelievable situation alone. And so to be able to say, we're here for you, we're going to walk alongside you, and we're going to covenant that we'll, we'll never leave you, we're going to be with you to the end. I think that's a really important expression of that. And also, I particularly appreciated it because, you know, you were busy. Yes, <laughs> You know, there were other people to look after, so that made a big difference. John, in terms of, if you like, um, for, for want of a better term, spiritual practice, without wanting to disintegrate the human being in any way, <laughs> yeah. um, what have you what have you learned along the way of how to go about, if you like, connecting with God? Yeah, well, it's been a long, slow process of learning and making mistakes and and learning again and relearning and so on, but. I think one of the things I've learned is that it was really important for me to try to prepare myself before I hit the intensive care unit, even if it was only a short time, uh, a time of sort of just focusing, specifically praying for what was coming this day, thinking about what events might be happening, praying for some of the people I was going to meet, and just praying that, that God would be with me and give me opportunities to be a witness to um, in, in whatever way he wanted. And um, I, I can particularly remember when I was working in the as a junior in the intensive care unit. The the song "Make Me a Channel of Thy Peace" was was very significant to me. I used to sing that. I tried to sing that to myself just internally. Uh, you know, make me a channel of your peace where there's despair in life. Let me bring hope where there's darkness only light. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned, in giving to all men that we receive, and in dying that we're born to eternal life. That was just helped me to, you know, because as soon as you hit the ward, it's like things are happening, people are. But trying to prepare, I think, with that, that preparation beforehand was really important. And then 
I, I've been very moved and, and, and influenced by this concept of, of practicing the presence of Christ. I'd read Brother Lawrence, who this uh, worked. He wasn't even a monk. He was just a, a kind of assistant in the, in the, kitchen, in the kitchens. He was. And he talked about doing the washing up and practicing the presence of Christ. And I was very influenced by that idea that wherever you're doing, it was possible to, to practice God's presence. It was to have a kind of an awareness of his presence. And so I really tried to do that. You know, I, I'd come across this definition of the Christian life as a combination of praying and living. <laughs> that's, that's basically what we're called to do. And so how could that, how could I do that? How, how is it possible to pray without ceasing as I was actually working? And of course, many, many times I failed and I, I would come to the end of the day and I would suddenly cross my mind. I hadn't once thought about anything spiritual at all. I'd just been totally preoccupied. But there were other days where I was just aware of God's presence as I was going through. And um, and one helpful thing was the idea of putting in reminders. As I, as I went through my day, I tried to put in things that I knew I was going to have to do and that would be a kind of reminder of God's presence. So one of the things I remember as a junior doctor was when we worked in the intensive care unit, one of the things you had to do was you had to take a blood sample from a baby, go to the lab in the just along the, the corridor and squirt the sample into a clever machine, blood gas machine, analyzer, and you would then wait about 20 to 30 seconds, then it would print out ching, 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 and print out the result. So I tried to just make it a, a discipline that I would use those 30 seconds to pray, to pray for the baby, to pray for the parents, to pray for myself. And it was just that, those kind of little reminders that just put bring it back into, oh yeah, oh yeah, I remember now, I'm supposed to pray. It sounds like blood gas machines have not changed in about 30 years. <laughs> this is exactly the same now. <laughs> so that, pray continually. I mean, so can you, can you examine someone's abdomen? Yes, yeah, so it's, it's, it's actually a skill you can learn, to my amazement. You know, it is perfectly possible to while you are taking a history, talking to people, examining an abdomen, listening to a chest, doing a scan, at another level, you can be praying. And uh, often without words, just aware of, of the presence of God. And, and, and I think it is a skill. I think we pra- the more we practice this, uh, the more we can integrate it into our, into our lifestyle. And, and therefore, and particularly then when, I, when I'm, with somebody who's very distressed, somebody who is, you know, Lord, just help me find, you know, help me to hear what's going on here. Give me wisdom. What words should I use here? And over the years, I've learned to sort of go with the flow. So that if something, as I'm doing this, and something just pops into my mind, uh, I just go with the flow. Um, some, uh, sometimes it's a verse or it's a sort of saying or something I heard. But if it seems to be helpful, I will just say something like, well, I don't know why, but this is just going through my mind. So I'll just say it to you. And, and sometimes I can say, gosh, that's, I can't believe you just said that. So, you know, that yeah. uh, the God can use these um, unexpected things that go through our head. I um, remember meeting a, a woman who's uh, sort of the, the head nurse in an emergency unit. And uh, they got the call that somebody was coming in with father, woman with half her arm off by helicopter. So they come in and apparently when somebody comes in, you would definitely know this, you know, when you're asking them questions, when, you know, they tend to be quite focused on listening to you and responding to you. And she was thinking, this woman seems to be preoccupied about something. So, so the, so the nurse, that's the, what is going on here? This is really unusual. Why is, she seems not quite to be quite present with me. 
um, as I would expect. And the Lord said to her, we'll ask her. And so she asked her, so, so is there something else going on for you at the moment? <laughs> Apart from the fact that you're on, isn't it? Yeah. And the woman said, uh, well, yes, I'm worried about my dogs. Who's going to feed my dogs? It's always the dogs. And I thought, oh my goodness. So, so yeah. don't worry, we'll get somebody to the dogs. We'll do something like that. And that was it. That was it. She asked God, ask her. And there, that was... <laughs> How about you, Ben? Um, here you are. So... Um, we can also ask this question in two ways. One, I mean, what one? How do you sustain yourself? Any, it's obviously emotionally, spiritually, physically demanding, and oh, yeah. often all of those things. How do you sustain yourself? And I'm quite interested in what you say as a as a manager to to people. How do you how do you how do you help people maintain their perspective? They're the younger doctors than you, but take those questions in whatever order you like. I'm sorry, it's very unprofessional to ask two questions at once. <laughs> um, I mean. I, I, I concur with a lot of what John said, and I, find, I, I, very, I find it very helpful. I'm glad to hear it. I suppose Johnny will help you do conquer. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I'll ask you for an endorsement. Yeah, um, yes, quite. Um, I'll give you a reference. <laughs> thank you. Um, that could be quite useful. Um, no, I yeah, and I, I think it's certainly um, the kind of the spiritual aspects of of uh, the day to day work is something I find challenging. I mean, it, it's it's hard um, to keep praying to keep kind of cognizant of god when you know the wait time is eight hours everyone's shouting at me someone's got their arm you know half off whatever um i do i do think also to go back to our integrative model of, of the human being that i i don't know if you'd agree but i think medics are generally quite bad at looking after themselves um both psychologically and physically um, and even very simple things uh, like taking breaks, like eating and drinking water, um, like you know having you kind of having a time to just you know mend yourself. Um, and also psychologically, having things that can be done to switch off and to take your mind off work. I mean, we're, we're very bad at that, um, and I, that I think is a discipline as well. Um, and you know, for our own sake, so that we can continue doing what we're doing. Mm. I think also that it is a godly thing. Uh, that we look after the bodies that God has given us, mm. uh, that they are God's, um, that we have, you know, that he has bestowed on us and we should take care of them and not break them. <laughs> mm. um, and certainly I, I try to, um, you know, in, in small ways, encourage my colleagues to do the same. Um, I don't know, there's a book that you might like called Fruitfulness on the Front Line. I don't know if you, if you, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a very, it, I find this really helpful actually what you write in Fruitfulness on the Front Line about kind of modeling godly character and, ministering love and grace yeah very good um and and kind of these small acts that actually can make a big difference mm -hmm. such yeah. as asking junior colleagues have you had a break yeah um do you want to go the interesting thing is you know as you get more senior as a doctor you have more and more opportunities of doing that you know because and it's so unusual because uh, unfortunately a lot of senior doctors are really insensitive bullying abusive uh, contemptuous sometimes of the juniors and so to actually as a senior doctor try to be genuinely uh, concerned about their welfare and saying look you know you've been working very hard I'll carry your pager you go off and have half an hour and break and uh, well, I'll, yeah. I, I think just taking that that kind of role the, the small acts of, of compassion and care is really very significant and people notice because yeah. it's it's unusual yeah we're doing a coffee run exactly yeah. sweet it's interesting the um, um research was done a little while back by a senior nurse and uh, concluding that the nhs was actually the rudest large organization 
to work in, um, which is interesting again. It is. And, and I mean, I, I, a little tidbit too, and that is um, the, the government set up a hotline for bullying at work. And it turned out that although the NHS comprised something like 7% of the workforce, 20% of the calls to the bullying at work or something like that were from NHS staff. So, yeah. so it just shows you that, that unfortunately, uh, the, as an organization, it's often deeply broken in terms of its uh, practices. What do you think that is? Well, I think, I think it's, it's often what, what staff find is that they are in this double bind. They've got two kinds of pressures. On the one hand, you've got senior management saying, no, you're not getting enough throughput. You know, you've know, got to do more with less. We're cutting down this. You've, you've got to work harder. We're not satisfied. You know, so there's all this pressure coming from on top. At the same time, you've got all this pressure coming from patients who say, do you know how long I've been working and this is ridiculous? And so there's a kind of pushback and hostility from patients. So the, the, the staff in the middle are just feeling very abused. Um, and it's, it's not surprising that, that, that this comes out often in bad relationships in, 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 and in people pushing back. And, and, and it, it, yeah, it, it's so it just shows you, doesn't it? There's, although the calling of the NHS, you know, to, to, to be there for people is, is, some, is a fundamentally a very godly calling. It, some very ungodly and bad things can happen within the staffing structures. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree, and that's certainly certainly been my experience over the, the few years I've been working. Um, I mean, I don't know if we, we can go onto this, but kind of how we deal with that. I don't know if that's yeah, no. where you want to go. Yeah, um, no, no. I was actually so <laughs> Mark um, told us. Oh, I just told me. I don't know if he told you uh, that we were we were asking questions to each other. Yeah. Um, and I um, so I took it upon myself to uh, send a message out to the Christian Medical Fellowship Junior Doctors WhatsApp groups, yeah. asking. Um, I'm on air on a podcast with John Wyatt and I'm told to ask him some questions. Any ideas? And I got a barrage of messages of <laughs> loads of different questions. Where does he get his hair cut? <laughs> um, someone, 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 Why is he such a plonker? <laughs> someone asked me to ask you if you had any resolution to the uh, Israel-Palestine conflict, but I won't go in there. Um, I, no, that's another podcast. Um, mm. But one of the kind of fairly common themes was actually how to deal with conflict mm. in the workplace. And I certainly think for me, that's one of the most stressful parts of my job. Like I actually usually don't get that stressed about medical emergencies, but you know, whether it be conflict between doctors or doctors, nurses or doctors, managers or doctors, patients or relatives, um, there's, there's a lot of conflict and fighting and backstabbing and slander that goes on. Do you have any wisdom on, on how to deal with that? Well, yeah, it's, it's absolutely true. And I think, uh, I mean, a few things I would say. Uh, number one, I think a huge amount of damage is done by email and by social media. And I, th I think we sh there's a really, some Im really important messages about the use of email and social media and texts and so on. And that is basically, I don't think you should ever put something negative into an email or into a text. Um, I, th I think these things are very good for positive things. So, so, you know, fantastic news, well done, isn't that amazing, you know, blah, blah. Or for just things, you know, why don't we meet at 3.30? on Thursday, you know, things that are emotionally neutral. But when it, I've seen so much damage done by negative emails, you know, somebody who just, I'm very disappointed. And of course, 
you don't know when the other person's going to pick up that email. Something terrible may have happened. You know, you've just had a terrible day. At last, you get back to your your office and you open up, and that's the first thing that comes back. You know, and and so I I think if you've got something negative to say, the best way to do it is face to face. And and look, this is really important. Could we? Can we? You know, we need to meet in the next before tomorrow. Can how can we do it? Uh, meet people face to face. Um, if you can't do that, then a phone call at least. But but I think that it just seems to me that the evil one uses um, this kind of frustrated, negative emails. And and of course, then the other thing you can do is copy and paste. And do you know what he said to me? And blah, blah, blah. He said, I'll just copy it to all my friends. You know, the whole thing just escalates. So so I think that's that's one thing. And I I think the other thing is just I think being a peacemaker is about a, is more positive than just being a kind of uh, a compromise as someone who just it's it's actually a peace creator it's about how can i create a better environment here and it i think it's often just getting people together i i think the the kind of just building friendships honest uh, open intimate friendships uh, not taking part in the gossip you know, pushing back, uh, you know, if somebody's being attacked by other people, sometimes it's taking their side and saying, well, actually, you know, um, try to, uh, yes, trying, trying to be different. And I, and I think there's such a lot of bad morale in the NHS and people just love it, particularly with junior doctors. The seniors just love saying, oh, I wouldn't, if I was you, I'd get out, you know, go and be a lawyer. You know, this is hopeless. Medicine, it's, all, it's a disaster, complete disaster, waste of time. I hate <laughs> being a doctor. You know, they're just putting all this kind of negative vibes. And just to be positive and enthusiastic and say, actually, it's a great job. Mm. And isn't it wonderful to be here? And, you know, just pushing back against this negativity. Uh, people much prefer to be around positive people. They much prefer to be around something. And affirming, again... As a, as a senior doctor, one of the best things, the most important things you do is just to encourage. You did a really good job there. I thought the way you handled that situation was, was very good, you know, giving specific, positive feedback. Um, again, just makes a huge difference. You can just see people blossoming when they're, when they're encouraged and affirmed. And, and positive people stand out uh, yeah. in, in, in the NHS. They're that infrequent. Uh, yeah. And people who just exude positivity and encouragement. And, yeah, no, I, I, you can, people notice them. I know you do a number of things, you know, in your own context. I mean, A&E is a slightly different dynamic. How do you go about being a positive presence? Oh, I mean, much, much the same, I think. I mean, trying to be um, positive and, and, and affirming. And yeah, trying to, to not get involved in the gossip and slander is, is quite a big thing. Like, there's a huge um, slanderous kind of backstabbing culture in, in the NHS. Um, any conversation seems to... Uh, kind of head in the direction of eventually kind of moaning about someone, whether mm. it be a relative or a manager or politicians or whoever, mm. um, and it's very easy to to get drawn into that. I mean, you know, what binds people best other than you know a common mm. enemy, <laughs> um, and yet, I mean, it's I think unhealthy and breeds an unhealthy um, workplace environment, and it's not godly. It's it's not it's not the way Jesus taught us to act. Um, and it, yeah, it's hard. I, mean, I, I certainly don't don't pretend like I, I get this right, and I, I'm certainly guilty of of, of moaning and and um, moaning about my colleagues. But at the same time, it's I think being conscious that it's not the way that Jesus intended. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned the kind of stuff in writing as well. I mean, 
the whole NHS is, uh, I think, built around sort of trying to identify negative things and kind of ignoring all the positive mm, good work uh, that happens. Yeah. I mean, in our end of year appraisals, um, generally when we get feedback from colleagues or from supervisors, there's often three options you can tick. No concerns, some concerns, or can't comment. And so the highest compliment you can get <laughs> is no concern. Is yeah, that that's the best that my supervisor can write about me. We haven't noticed anything bad about you, but there probably is yeah, still exactly. there. Yeah. And it's just nuts. That's very good. Very good. Well, I happen to know one of the things that you do do, which I was very impressed with, was um, being alert to when people go off shift. Uh, I hadn't realised that that makes so many people don't make complete sense. They don't, everybody doesn't go off shift at the same time. So there's a staggering, and I think you know what you were saying about being aware of that, and then saying thank you to people. Well, yeah, you know, they're going off an hour before you or half an hour before you, but you make a point of of engaging with them that way. I think yeah. it's you know, despite despite the pace of it, despite all that's, I was very impressed with that. Yeah, I mean, I I, I learned that from a consultant of mine who would always notice when I was about to go off shift and thank me for my hard work that day. Right. I have no idea how much of my work he noticed, but he thanked me for it. And I was like, actually, I can do that. I can do that with my nursing colleagues, a little bit my, my my junior colleagues as well. And I, and I try, you know, and I think that, I think it makes a difference. It made a difference to me. Absolutely. I mean, one of the syndrome that happens in intensive care units is, is the juniors have spent the whole night sort of desperately struggling with all kinds of unexpected events. And, and at last, you, you, you know, you're just making it till about seven o'clock when it's like the cavalry in the morning, you know, the cavalry appear, you're absolutely exhausted, you know, and the consultant appears and starts looking and see what's good, what's happened. And sadly, so often the, the, the consultant turns up and then starts criticizing and saying, oh, why, did, why didn't this happen? You know, that blood glucose was late and why did this, and I wasn't informed about this and, you know, and. And just to have some positive encouragement, you know, I thought you did really well. You've done, obviously, you know, it's been a difficult shift, but, you know, well done. You've managed to keep all this under control and nobody died. That's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> and so that, that kind of sort of positive uh, re reinforcement really makes, again, just makes all the difference. Without um, going into the, if you like, um, the philosophy of medical ethics on this particular podcast, Today, um, I can recommend another one. Yes, John, where you're going to hear John speak about it. John, now for those who don't know, John White's written widely on medical ethics, and there are several books that you can consult on his opinions. This, but just about you know, these things come at you, don't they? They come at both of you, I assume, in in, in A and E as well. So, how do you, how do you deal with it when it's coming? At you? Well, one of the things I learned early on, and that is that uh, ethical challenges and uh, are often unexpected. They come from left field, they come with no warning, and bang, you've got to respond. And there is just no time often to say, oh, this is clearly a big ethical, I need to go away and read some big books. I'll come back in three weeks' time and tell you what my <laughs> decision is. So basically, you've got to do your ethical thinking in advance. You, you've got to say, what if, you know, uh, and that's what I've had to do, wrestle with myself. And what I try and help my friends and colleagues and juniors to do is think through in advance, how would you respond if X happens? What, where are your red lines? What, what's the reasons? How, what, how would you explain your ethical positions and so on? So, and yet they still, you know, having said all that, um, the ethical problems do come completely from left field. And I, numerous times in my case, in fact, sometimes, Later on, when I had sort of written about medical ethics, 
it almost felt like the Almighty said, well, you think you're a bit of an expert in medical <laughs> ethics? Just try this one. And I'm going, oh. <laughs> So it keeps you humble. You never know. He's just uh, developing you for your next book, the follow-up. It's like seven habits. It's all there's an eighth habit. Eight principles I didn't think of last time. That's by John Wyatt. No, it just keeps you humble. How's that recall, is it? So um, for you also, I mean, do, do you see moments within A&E where, if you like, the, the Christian ethical perspective you know, make, has made a difference? Uh, yes. Um, it's often tricky because, I mean, in any medical context, often you have very little time to think through your ethics. And then in A&E, where it's, it's often kind of seconds to minutes of, of trying to make a decision, um, and I, I agree, I, I certainly have benefited hugely from being taught from basically the start of medical school, from the Christian Medical Fellowship, mm. from John and others, about these sort of ethical things and how to think through them. Um, and I think that's hugely important. I certainly uh, yeah, would have benefited hugely from that. Um, but yeah, certainly um, issues around end of life often and right. <clears throat> withdrawal of treatment, kind of CPR, DNA, CPR, that kind of stuff. Um, I think you might have to say DNA, CPR, just tell me um, about so it. Um, CPR is, is, is cardiopulmonary resuscitation, trying to restart someone's heart with chest mm-hmm. compressions, electric shocks, drugs, um, and then DNA CPRs do not attempt resuscitation, okay. so it's not attempting that. Um, and, and certainly I've been privy to a few conversations where I've actually had, well, I've, I've felt the need to go, no, I think I, I disagree with this. I disagree with um, this decision based on this reason. Um, so uh, kind of an obvious example that I've encountered more than once is a decision to make someone not for resuscitation based on, quote, their quality of life. Mm-hmm. Um, so their, their, their quality of life is not great because they're just sat bed bound watching television all day and therefore we shouldn't attempt resuscitation independent of whether we think resuscitation will work or not. Right. Um, you know, I, I am in favor of, resu- of DNARs in the situations where we don't think it will work and therefore we don't want to give a treatment that we know won't work. And, you know, there's lots of circumstances where it is appropriate, very much so. But actually, when it comes to quality of life decisions, I have felt the need on a few occasions to go, mm, who are we to say that someone's life is not worth living? Who, who am I to say that their quality of life is not good enough for us to try? I can say that a med- medication will work. I have, I have the right yeah. to do that. But I don't have the right to say that someone's life is not worth living. And I think that is a distinctly Christian, at least um, the way I've, I, I see it is it's quite a distinctly Christian um, view that can um, influence decisions made. Mm. Uh, that we believe that our uh, inherent value is not based on our functionality or our quality of life or how much we like our lives, but it's, it's, it's intrinsic to our creation. So have the colleagues responded when you've made that kind of point? Oh, it's interesting because, uh, as you say, it's, it's often very, um, you don't have the time to think mm-hmm. through your ethics. And that applies to like, all colleagues, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think if you start to push back uh, against an ethical issue, I think my experience is that most people go, Oh, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, yeah. Like, most people haven't thought about this exactly. kind of stuff. Exactly. Um, and so, generally, they're receptive to it. Yeah. Yeah, that's my experience, too. I think I think that a lot of medics just, they really only think in terms of technical, you know, aspects, following protocols, and just sort of, and when you suddenly say, hang on a minute, you know, is this the right thing to do? And it's suddenly, oh, wow, you know, I hadn't thought about that. Um, so, so I think that is part of our role as as Christians and the people who are, are thinking about this, the bigger picture. Um, that often 
we we can and other people say actually you know what now you've mentioned it i think i think you're right i think mm -hmm. we should you know so so it, it's almost like being the canary in the <laughs> the mine isn't it just pointing out there are issues here we need to think about thinking uh, about sustaining oneself over many years already quite a few years uh, and many years for you what has helped you if you like stay on the straight and narrow emotionally physically yeah i mean <laughs> the first thing to say is that i'm not the best um role model because i uh, having worked in this very very demanding uh situation for decades uh, more than 20 20 years uh the the level of pressure and stress was such that eventually i cracked up and had a quite a severe psychiatric illness necessitating a whole uh, period in hospital over a slow recovery and re then planning my my life and career so so i'm not necessarily the best the best role model but i think what i have learned uh, both before and after my breakdown is that is that friendship human friendship is probably the biggest single uh, resource and certainly when i did crack up you know there's nothing like having a major psychiatric illness to discover who your real friends are <laughs> and um and and i was very moved and touched by the love and the concern and just the support uh, that i got from some really close friendship so investing in your friendships you know beforehand before the before the it's a bit late after. it's a bit late after and so you know creating the kind of depth and honesty and openness of friendships so that there are people who are there for you you know one of the problems that christian medics have is that uh, there are quite a lot of support mechanisms within the nhs um, including, you know, various uh, counselling services, psychotherapy, yoga classes, <laughs> mindfulness. Uh, but the the problem is that the kind of spiritual aspects of, of 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 it get lost. But then when we go to our local church communities, you know, most people in a in a in a Christian community, and you want to try and explain about this terrible shift you've had in the cardiac arrest that went wrong, and you're feeling terribly guilty and all the rest. I mean, people are just, they can't really cope with that. Yeah. And so it's almost like the only people who really cope are other Christians who are also medics, who are in the profession. And so there's a particular closeness and role for your colleagues who who, who understand it. They share both the spiritual issues, but also the the reality of what it's like to work in medicine. And it's a, I mean, developing friendships is quite a difficult thing to do. Real, those kind of friendships you're talking about anyway. It's not sort of like the average uh, 40-year-old man has, you know, a string of friends. Well, this is the this is interesting, isn't it? Because I think people often do have quite good friendships at kind of college, university mm. uh, period. And then often what happens over the following 10, 20 years is that our friendships just often seem to wither and, and disappear. So something I learned from, from Rico Tice, actually, he, he said... Uh, love is a four-letter word spelt T-I-M-E. <laughs> and I think that is so profound and so important. In other words, the only way to develop these kind of really close, intimate friendships is to choose to spend time, uh, to spend time alone, to make it, quotes, quality time. And 
and that means that we've got we've got so other so many other distractions we've got you know all the all the things we need to do catch up on my emails you know catch up on the latest netflix you know uh, and all the rest and i need to say actually there's something that's even more important than this and that is spending time with my closest friends yeah i think actually and the the millennial and the gen z generation are even worse um, when it comes to that because most of our friendships at least a huge part of them are done via text and photos uh, on on whatsapp or an instagram or or snapchat or whatever um and yeah i think there is something to be said of physical want human to human relationships that we are intentionally depriving ourselves of you know it's not good for man to be alone we're designed to be physically with people um and yet so much at least my life is is conducted through the medium of photos and text it's essentially you say about some you know the specialist question in other words you know here am i a christian and you're a doctor and so my question might be how how do i actually get myself to the point where I'm some use. Mm. Uh, my old prayer partner used to, I mean, he was, he was a businessman and then suddenly, you know, as, as he grew um, and got more and more responsibility, my ability to actually understand, mm. you know, what he was actually going through and the, you know, the, the scale of the questions that he was wrestling with diminished, mm. you know, year by year by year. Mm. Um, so, you know, I have to carry on asking lots of questions. What What do you say to people who... Actually, really do want to support you, but if you, t- you know, um, how do how do you get me to the point where I'm not flipped out by the cardiac arrest and somebody <laughs> bleeding out in front of you while you're having your lunch? You know what? Yeah. I, I do. No, I how, that's I, a, it's a good question. I I think uh, I think it's a two way process. Certainly, I mean, you know, I need to be honest with you without sharing all the gory details, but. I need I need to for you to try and help you to understand what it feels like uh, in this kind of situation, um, and and asking you know just explain it to me to explain what it feels like you know I'm listening. Uh, how can I pray for you? Uh, it's you know I, I think it's 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 the heart and it's a two way process, isn't it? it? It's 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 as we make ourselves vulnerable to one another. That we, that the intimacy grows. Um, the amazing thing about John Stott, you know, who who was intentionally reaching out to younger people in order to develop this friendship, was that once he started to develop the friendship with you, and he 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 trusted you, and was getting to know you, he was prepared to make himself remarkably vulnerable. He 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 shared with me, you know. We'd only been sort of knew one another for two or three years, and then, to my astonishment, he he started sharing some very deep and intimate stuff about his own struggles, and I was just taken aback by that level of mm. integrity, vulnerability, honesty, and of course, it, it it takes the friendship on to a deeper level. Mm. If you're prepared to take the initiative mm. and actually talk about the real stuff, um, that that's a way of building a deeper friendship and and actually you don't need to understand all the technical details do you what you need to understand is is the heart what what's you know and, and sometimes just asking how is it with your heart how is it with your soul you know yes. is, is a good question it's a good question yeah. uh i the, the question that was on the table which you've given an answer to so far is you know what sustained you through that so one of those things is is 
really good friendships, mm-hmm. cultivating really good friendships uh, as a kind of rule of life yeah. as a kind of confront. Is there anything else that it has gotten you through? I think it's avoiding the traps. You know, there are some real traps. One of the ways, because medics spend their whole time with drugs, we assume that pharmacological approaches is the best way of dealing with problems. And so it's very common for doctors to self-medicate themselves. Um, Sometimes, you know, with with drugs, with tranquilizers, with antidepressants, with uh, alcohol. I mean, doctors, (laughs) the definition of alcoholic is someone who drinks more than their doctor. And, uh, you know, and, and it's not just a joke, you know, a lot of medics drink a lot of alcohol because it's a kind of pharmacological approach. So uh, sex and sexual promiscuity is, again, very common amongst junior doctors and nurses. I mean, you know, the, the, um, and, 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 it, and it's very easy when you're very tired and depressed and lonely and here's an available person. Uh, you know, so, so there are, it's trying to avoid the, the other means, which is so easy to fall into and say, actually the healthy way is friendship. Mm. And that's what I'm going to, and, and I need my friends now because I'm feeling vulnerable. Yeah. I'd agree with that. I think as well, um, our jobs are inherently stressful and inherently you know, unpleasant. We deal with sickness that is unpleasant. Um, and I certainly, um, I found myself kind of going home and instinctively looking at BBC news or um, social media and scrolling through all the unpleasant, horrible, ugly stuff that um, is out in the world as well, and kind of being conscious of that and the effect it's having on on my mental health. Um, I've, I worked in one department where, in the staff room of the A and E, there was constantly playing twenty four hours in A and E. Uh, for some bizarre, <laughs> weird sort of self-punishment. Um, and I was like, why would you do this to yourself? Uh, um, but yeah, so uh, maybe avoiding that. Downton Abbey or something. Yeah, something escapism. Like, it was some Disney film or something. Something positive I really learned was the idea of mental hygiene. So that we all know that physical hygiene is important and we have to wash our hands every day. And the fact that I washed my hands yesterday doesn't mean I'm going to have to wash my hands today. On a neonatal unit, you can end up washing your hands 60, 70, 80, 100 times in a day. But phys- uh, mental hygiene is also important. And mental hygiene is monitoring my thought life and then saying, I'm not going to dwell on that stuff. I'm not going to allow myself to go round and round this loop. And, and that list in Philippians where it says whatever things are true, whatever things are just, whatever things are, are righteous, whatever things are of good report, you know, that think about these things. And apparently the Greek is, is, is stronger than think. It's sort of cogitate, reflect, meditate. And I think that discipline of just monitoring my thought life and then saying, I'm not going to allow this. I'm going to focus my mind on things. It's interesting, if you break down the Philippians list, it's things that are true, starts with truth, it's things that are good, and it's things that are beautiful. Uh, I'm going to fill my mind with things that are truth, things that are good, and things that are beautiful. Hey, pretty good. <laughs> you mentioned something a bit, bit earlier um, when you talked about the role of a medic in, in medicine, but also you, there, was, there was a sense about the role of a medic in the church. Mm. And I just wonder if you wanted to 
expand on that? Was that some... Yeah, uh, and I think, again, this is something that John has, has had a bit of an influence in my thinking as well, in that, yes, we're called, uh, as, as you, you write about, uh, about being a Christian influence in the workplace, but I do think there is something to be said about the role of medics in the church. Um, not to kind of overinflate our importance uh, or to kind of think that we suddenly have all the answers, but I think there is roles to play for those who are willing to take them. When it comes to um, helping Christians or helping the church at large, um, think through things, whether it be sickness, death, uh, mental health, science, um, technology, identity. You know, and we come, you know, as medics, we come into the church and, and I suppose what we don't want to do is is leave our medical brains at the door. Um, I think that's John Stott who said that. Um, and and actually, uh, we can if we can be of use. <laughs> we can we can yeah. be of use and certain things. And certainly, um, being able to speak into say a friend's mental health struggles from a kind of friendship level, from a sort of Christian biblical level, but also from a medical level, and, and going well, actually, uh, maybe it sounds like it's worth seeing your GP and chatting through this, that, and the other. Mm. Um, can be of immense value. Um, and I, I do think that is something that I would encourage Christian medics to think about, the, the the positive impact, what we can contribute to the church. And also at the same time, well, we go for a lot of other professions as well, um, whether it be like legal stuff or political stuff or, or whatever. Because um, we are, I think, much stronger if we bring our experience and our expertise uh, into the church and, and, and use it as one body rather than as I say, kind of leaving our brains at the door. Yeah, there was a church, a similar point really, a church that was reaching out to a particular neighborhood close by them. And it was a sort of urban regeneration neighborhood and the church wasn't an urban regeneration church. And uh, they came back and they were doing the report on all the things that they found and so on and so forth. And uh, there was a woman in the room who was a GP who had a practice in that neighborhood and no one had asked her the question. And of course she knew hundreds of these but and because of the conditions that were coming into her surgery she knew the, the level of mental health she knew about the physical things she knew about malnutrition she knew about all kinds of things and no one had asked her so there's also the kind of we need to be asking proactively you know you've got you've got insights let that yeah you know, I, just in in your context i was chatting to a vicar friend of mine uh, about some quite, quite technical issue relating to um gender and transgenderism and and uh, uh, reassignment um, and I kind of asked him for his uh, view what do you think the church should do and he basically responded to be honest like we're kind of waiting for the medic to tell us what to do mm-hmm. <laughs> and I said okay great well hang on <laughs> that's, that, that's us <laughs> um, <laughs> kind of, okay now I got it yeah and then yeah, certainly Fair enough. Was, yeah. I do think the GP um, this is one of the great privileges of being a GP and that is you are rooted into a, a local community and and uh, in many ways, the GP has replaced the priest yeah. or the pastor as the person that people naturally turn to with with their problems. And where I've seen it work really well is where a, a local church community is working very closely with a Christian GP and Christian GP practice. You get a very powerful combination because they can refer both ways. You know, if someone goes to see the GP with what is basically a spiritual problem. Uh, they can be referred that way if someone is seeing the church or what is basically a medical problem. So, so uh, it's a very powerful combination. It's, it's this kind of holistic, Christ-like um, engagement um, in, in all aspects of, 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 the, of humanity. 
Um, can come to you, Ben, now, because uh, having polled 300,000 junior doctors <laughs> with their questions of what they would like to ask John Wyatt, uh, would, would you want to ask him one or more of the others or just a question of your own? Uh, sure. I mean, how, how long do we have? I mean, I, I've got plenty. One. Just one. Um, and then perhaps one of your own. If you okay, want. sure. Um, the, uh, one of the kind of other common threads that came out when I was polling my, my WhatsApp groups, or a dozen of them, um, was I suppose kind of going back to the spiritual versus physical and particularly conversations around futility of medical treatment and potentially end of life care. Um, so one of the questions that someone asked me to ask you was, um, how do you balance your belief in the limits of medicine with your beliefs in supernatural intervention? And also how does that work when the patient themselves believes in supernatural intervention and therefore doesn't want what we deem futile treatment to stop? Yeah, it's, this is a really important issue. And so one of the paradoxes is a number of studies have shown that people who you, who are approaching death and who are religious believers or who use religious coping, it's often described as a way of coping with them, they're more likely to insist on futile treatment at the end of life. They're more likely to insist on being admitted to the intensive care unit. They're less likely to have a do not resuscitate order. Um, and and they're more likely to die badly in an intensive care unit. And I, I think one of the things that I've seen repeatedly over my medical career is that sometimes bad religion is worse than no religion at all. You know, the, the bad religion, bad theology uh, can do a huge amount of damage. And, and certainly... Uh, one of the arguments that is used for uh, by some believers is, I'm trusting God to heal me. I know he's got, I may have terminal cancer, but I'm absolutely convinced he, he's going to heal me. I'm having faith, but I've got to give God the very best chance of healing me. And that means I've got to be admitted to the intensive care unit. If I don't want to go to the intensive care unit, I don't have faith. You know, so this kind of really, I think, twisted kind of, of, of logic Um you know, if God was really going to heal you, he really doesn't need the intensive care units. <laughs> but um, so I, I think trying to help people, and I think, and this is one of the huge problems. I think, you know, as doctors, we're not in a position to uh, to override. Often we, we have to work with uh, patients. We have to work with parents as a pediatrician. Um and, and that means we listen to them, we understand them, but then we can try and persuade, you know, to try and say, actually, you know, I too am a believer, but my own understanding is that that's not a very helpful way of looking at it. And that dying well, helping to see that, um, I mean, it's a terrible way to die. You know, you've seen it. I've seen it. I've watched people die in, in a horrible way as having cardiac massage, having drugs injected electric chest. shocks cracking over tests I mean, what a terrible way to die and yet sadly it happens regularly um in in our hospitals and it happens because people haven't got the courage to say enough is enough and um so helping people to see another way um but at the same time recognizing that sometimes you know i'm not god i i sometimes get it wrong uh, and I just have to recognise that that that's the that's the case, and also people God gives people a huge amount of responsibility for their own care, doesn't He? I mean, time and time again in the Scriptures, it's almost as though God watches people 
make terribly bad decisions and then live out the consequences of their decisions. Why didn't he intervene and say, no, 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 that's the bad thing? He doesn't. He, he almost respects us, uh, even when we're making very bad decisions. And so sometimes you watch patients make terrible decisions and sadly you watch the consequences enact in front of your eyes. Mm. And often it's actually relatives' decisions rather yeah. than, than the patients themselves who are often not able to make the decisions. Yes. Actually, the conversation is entirely happening with a relative, which I find even harder because it's like... It is hard. And so often relatives are motivated by fear um, and, and it's fear that drives them. So just do everything, doctor. Just just keep it going. Do everything. And, and that's not a helpful response. It's an understandable response. Yeah, it's interesting because often these conversations I find as soon as a patient or a relative brings religion into it it's almost like a like a kind of break slam on the conversation and the doctors go okay better not better not talk about it anymore yeah. we'll just we'll just do it then because this and, and you, I mean do you think that there is a role to say well actually theologically speaking here is maybe another well I, I do I, I mean obviously it, it takes sensitivity but there's definitely a place to say well I too believe in God you know, and 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 let me be honest about the way I see it. And I've I've done that on a number of occasions in these kind of conversations. Of course, you've got to be sensitive. But interestingly, you know, the, the rules from the General Medical Council, they say actually discussing spiritual issues is is important, and that done appropriately, doctors can share their own perspectives and beliefs. All that we mustn't do is we mustn't abuse, we mustn't coerce, we mustn't say, well, I'm a Christian and this is what you must do. God is telling you. Of course, we mustn't do that. Yeah. But appropriately sharing um, our own perspectives. Um, and I've, Again, on many occasions, people are quite shocked. They don't expect the doctor to start talking about God, but the fact that they, they like the fact that the doctor, mm-hmm. even if they're coming from a different faith tradition completely, like a Muslim, I often find I'm, I'm, I can have a much better conversation yeah. be, because they know I'm a believer and, and therefore uh, I don't think they're completely mad and, and I'm, I'm sh- respecting their beliefs, but I'm just saying, you know, do you, possibly can you think about it this way? Yeah, and actually, if, uh, in palliative care, I mean, often the pro formas say ask about spiritual stuff. And we, 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 um, we're, I think we're quite good at, in, in the end of life setting, um, asking do you have a faith and do you want referral to the chaplaincy so i think yeah i can imagine it's not that much of a step to start actually talking about it to you yeah what about a one question you'd like <laughs> to ask john you, you know what's coming i <laughs> do know i like the questions i, I we, we were brainstorming <laughs> questions I, I suppose my, one question i've never asked you before and i've kind of i'm curious about your answer is um, obviously you, you retired from clinical practice a few years ago um if you had your clinical career again, is there anything you'd do different? I'd certainly do paediatrics and neonatology again. Uh, I would I would be much more careful in monitoring my mental health, and um, I and I think I would be I would be more assertive because one of the strange things that happened is that basically what. Um, the reason I, I cracked up was that the overload of work, both academic and clinical work, was just completely overwhelming. And it seemed there was no way out. You know, everything was hopeless. You know, I, I couldn't see any way out with honor. When I did eventually crack up, this caused quite a bit of a stir because I was the professor and what on earth was happening. And so the university and the hospital both created 
um, new full-time consultant posts. They said, oh, dear, this is very good. And so they created a full-time academic, new academic post, and a full-time consultant in etology post, new posts. And the sad thing is, I mean, the money was there. They could have done it beforehand, uh, and it would have made a huge difference. But it was, and if I had been more assertive about, in a, in a gentle and godly way, but I think it would have been possible for me to say, you know, this is not sustainable, um, mm. and to push back. But instead, I just felt this God had called me to do this. I just had to somehow survive. Uh, so, yeah, I, I I wish I had done that. And yet, you know, the interesting thing is that going through this extremely painful process of, of a severe psychiatric illness, of a locked hospital ward, of everything that flowed from that, uh, it, it changed me as a person. But actually... I can see a lot of good and positive things that have flown out of that terrible experience. And if you could offer me the possibility of going back and just wiping out that experience, I wouldn't take it because out of that, it was a kind of redemptive experience. God God loves to take terrible, destructive, painful things and somehow miraculously gradually turn them into blessing and healing. And that's my testimony. He's done that in my life. Amen. What a beautiful way to begin to remind ourselves of who Jesus is, what he come to do, and what he has done. Not only in drawing each one of us to himself, but week by week, year by year, in, in our very lives. Thank you so much, uh, Benjamin Chang and Jonathan Wyatt, uh, <laughs> for your insights, for your vulnerability, transparency, and energy, and indeed for your work day by day, shift by shift, and over the years in bringing healing and wisdom both to your patients and into the church. Hugely grateful. Uh, just to fulfill all righteousness, I'm, it's quite a privilege to be sitting uh, with two authors in the room at the same time. And this, um, for those of you who are not familiar with this, Christ and the Culture Wars, Speaking for Jesus in a World of Identity Politics by Ben Chang. And I can commend this book to you. In fact, I have commended this book. <laughs> in writing. Uh, in writing, and it's on the inside. So it's a terrific, terrific piece of work. And John, uh, some of you know, has written um, much in many areas, but his new book coming out is very pertinent to what uh, you've been talking about today, which is called Transforming Friendship. Transforming Friendship. Uh, lessons indeed from John Stott, and I imagine other people. And of course, John has been a very good friend to many people himself. So thank you very much indeed to you both. If uh, you're interested in things particularly medical, do scuttle over to the uh, Christian Medical Fellowship website. It is really an outstanding resource and you'll find many things written there by John and many others, um, both if you like practically as well if you, as theologically. So that's uh, Christian Medical Fellowship, CMF. And if more generally you're interested in things about work, um, then there's no better place to go than the LICC website, where there are other places, but ours is terrific too. So scuttle over there, have a look. Books, links, films, videos, uh, events, and so on. Please do. Uh, we've been encouraged in the melee of life to pray continually. So I do pray uh, for you that indeed in whatever you do, you might grow as John has encouraged us to do in your awareness of the Lord's presence with you. So that whether you're examining an abdomen or examining a spreadsheet, spreadsheet, you might be able to do it with him, in him, and for him. 
Thanks very much indeed for listening. Shalom, shalom.